every once in a while, I get to do a really fun episode recorded with a live audience. This session was a collaboration with some incredible colleagues who you'll meet in just a minute. I want to thank South by Southwest EDU for all of the work they do to bring together a really incredible crowd for that conference. And I'll say coming into this year's conference, it had been quite some time since I had been out professional conferencing. And like so many things post-COVID, I had that feeling of question. Why do we do this again? And was it worth it to come all this way to be together with this group of people? And by day three or four, the answer was a resounding yes. I had a really good time this year. And not just a really good time socializing and getting back into the world, but a really productive few days. There aren't many conferences I can think of that are representative the way that South by Southwest EDU is. A lot of people don't even know that South by Southwest has an education conference, but the ones who do know that it is a really interesting mix of funders, philanthropic organizations, district and federal leadership in education, as well as practitioners, policymakers. It's a really neat group and, and uh, you know, sort of sprinkled throughout all of that, definitely the ed tech community comes out in force. What I love about the conference is that there's a lot to get done with a lot of very different audiences and this year was no exception. I hope you love this conversation. We put a lot into it and uh, I certainly personally took a lot out. A quick offer before we get started. If you write No Such Thing Podcast, a review and use your name, I'm going to run a raffle in the next few weeks. The person chosen will get free ad space on not one, but two upcoming episodes. Maybe you have a new book or some research you want to make people aware of, an event upcoming that's relevant to our show or you're looking for participants in an upcoming program, let's help each other. Again, head to your platform of choice. Apple is my preferred because it's our biggest referrer. And I'll choose from reviews posted on or after March of 2023. This raffle ends May 1st. Don't miss out. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Welcome, everybody. I hope you're having a phenomenal EDU. Uh, if you're big spenders at the conference, you get a projection on the wall over here. But this panel actually sponsored this chandelier. <laughs> so um, I want to welcome you to a recording of the No Such Thing podcast. And if you don't know of the No Such Thing podcast, I want you to go find it as lots of you have your phone in your hand. I hope you'll find it. I hope you'll give a listen, rate it and review it if you like it. You may or may not know that education podcasts have a hard time making their way in the algorithm to the top of the list. So the best contribution you can give is a five-star rating. That's like gold. Um, my name is Mark Lesser. I'm the vice president of research and technology for a group called NAF. I also want to motivate everybody to check out NAF.org. 
Uh, NAF is one of those giants of school support that has been around for 40 years. We support a network of 600 schools nationally in the wings uh, of public schools in 35 states who are trying to make work-based learning uh, a sort of heartbeat of an academy experience that reframes how young people experience school. And in my role as the Vice President for Research and Technology, data and research is absolutely key. Uh, a huge part of my day job is to be obsessed with the topic of research storytelling in the digital age. And so I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about our work, but before I do, uh, as we do on the podcast, we usually do a cold open and, and folks uh, introduce themselves with a short opener. I honestly could not be more excited about the folks you all have a chance to uh, hear from today. So starting on my far left, uh, I'm going to have you all do your introduction. And then rather than having you sit through uh, what is often a panel format, you know, at a conference where you're going to hear from, you know, 10 minutes from each of these people. Uh, we're going to jump right into the topic and you're going to hear about their work as we dialogue. Um, so without further ado. All right, I'll kick it off. Um, what's up, everybody? Happy International Women's Day. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, I am the co-founder of the Global Turning Points Collective, which is a research critical pedagogy collective headquartered in New York City. Bogota, Colombia, and Stanford, California. Um, I teach on the faculty at the City University of New York in the Youth Studies program, where I teach research methods, and we'll talk a bit about youth studies and the impact of research in the youth development sector, and then also at the University of San Francisco on the School of Ed. Um, happy to be here. Hi, I'm Kylie Pepler. I am a faculty member at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm also the director of the Creativity Lab. So we like to study arts and creativity in the 21st century context and, and how we might use coding or other kinds of platforms for that work. We're also deeply embedded in thinking about how we can re-envision our communities in the 21st century through connected learning or connected communities, and how do we go about designing those together with our communities? I think part of what's so exciting about this particular podcast Thanks for putting it together. Um, is just that we work so siloed across so many industries, but towards similar or common good and aims. And we've got to break out of our silos to be able to do that. So um, I'm excited to, to chat about how storytelling can help us transcend. And I'm Singita Shrestova. I'm based at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, where I run a group called Civic Paths. And we, look, we basically bridge between popular culture and civic engagement, broadly speaking. We use a range of methodologies to do that. And I'm also in the, in the business of training young scholars who are going to go out into the world and become academics and researchers, or are not, are going to go into other spaces. So we think a lot about how what knowledge they're creating, how they're creating it, what we're training them to do, how we communicate with the communities that we research with and on, um, and what that, how that can have an impact in the world. I told you. <laughs> um, such an awesome group. So um, my entry point for the obsession with this question of what does it mean to storytell around research in the digital age actually started for myself as uh, a fellow in the youth studies department, how I, I, Bishop and I met. Um, and I had an amazing opportunity to teach 
for a semester on sabbatical uh, to a, a youth studies graduate program. And I had a group of students who essentially were going to take one course. These were graduate students who were going to go into social work, going to work in schools, going to lead nonprofits, uh, work as youth developers, and they were going to get one course in digital learning, which is my background. And uh, I had to think very quickly. These were mostly mid-career professionals, but how was I going to get the stack of research that I thought was the stuff of a good syllabus into the practice and into the ideas of these young professionals who were so excited about really thinking through what it means to be young in a digital age. And so that's how this show was born, was uh, I instead decided to donate my time and go have conversations like this one with the smartest people I know and um, basically cover the topics that I was going to cover in my syllabus, but through conversations that they could listen to on the train. And that's how this started. So this recording will be right around episode 120. Um, so it's been about five years. So my foray into uh, research storytelling is being performed live. But I also want to point everybody to some incredible work that's happening in the research and tech team at NAF. So I mentioned before we have 600 schools in 35 states. Three years ago when I came to NAF, one of the things I challenged our department to do is to think about what it would mean to take peer-reviewed research, often 50 pages, and everybody's done this where you send something to a teacher as a PDF and it's 50 pages long, and nobody has time uh, in their schedule to take that on. And so I challenged the team with what would it look like to produce something that was easy enough to take into practice that they could read the main points in three minutes and they'd actually want to see research pinned onto their office wall, right? Whether it was a principal's office or anything else. So the research zine that is on the chairs in this room is one of a series. We have three out now where uh, we, this particular one is around work-based learning. Uh, we did over 200 virtual internships during COVID, and we wrote a descriptive study around uh, best practices for virtual learning in a in virtual internship environment. The zine in eight pages, you get our best practices. You fold it open, and there are the practices with a QR code on the back that then leads you to our knowledge management space where educators can log in, uh, download resources in work-based learning, and really start to think immediately about what it looks like to put research to practice. So in my practice, uh, this idea that we've talked about for decades of transmedia actually uh, is in my mind a lot. What does it look like to put a piece of paper in somebody's hand that then is a you know, leads to a breadcrumb trail that they bring online and, and to other spaces? So um, without further ado, we are going to get started um, with this conversation, but I want to encourage everybody, uh, whatever time we have left at the end of this dialogue, I want you to start thinking about your questions and seeing this mic at the front of the room as a friend, um, get excited about asking this panel questions. Thank you. Whoever woohooed gets an extra hug. Something. Um, the way we start the show is with an intro. So here's how the intro, you'll hear it when you download the podcast and listen to this episode. When this group talked about topical motivators for us to share this dialogue, I was quickly reminded that the stakes of great storytelling and research have never been higher. 
Outside of education, you can think about climate change as an example where the stakes of translating science into compelling stories could arguably change the future of our planet. Inside of education, we've just lived through a pandemic. Children nationwide are living through a mental health, a literacy, and an identity crisis, realizing that tr traditional pathways to and through college are difficult and lead to jobs much less reliably than ever before. My hope is that anyone listening to our dialogue today leaves not with a prescription for what research storytelling must look like in the digital age, but with a smart set of ideas, whether you're a researcher or a teacher, a program person in a nonprofit, equip you with tools to avoid what many of us in this room have unintentionally done in the past, to overthink the proposal, the execution, the need for research, and underthink who it's for and how to get it there. Put differently, this is a dialogue that I hope prevents your projects from being a tree that falls in the woods without a soul around to hear it. So, Sangeeta, we're gonna start with you. It feels really important as we're talking about research to talk a little bit about your area of expertise, which is media, and to talk a little bit about um, the media landscape within which research typically operates, and therefore what constraints exist right off the bat in terms of how we access research and how we broadcast it. All right, so I, I'm going to be speaking from my experience based at the University of Southern California and what I see in terms of how, how research is generated and then how we're trying to work with that in our, in our group. So the first thing to note is that, again, as I said, I work with young scholars, so students who are on the PhD track or looking to become academics, and the messages they're receiving in terms of how they should be constructing their research, what the ideal path is, and then where it's going to be used. So for them, they are looking to publish in a pretty small handful of journals, academic journals that are peer-reviewed, often taking very long times to, for turnaround. We're talking months, years, possibly even. And then that journal is published and that article gets read. And the, the hope in terms of, let's say, the, the conventional hope there would be that this is then picked up by um, journal, uh, media outlets who will then translate it into a language that can be understood, yeah. right? But what we find, of course, is that number one, the language is a problem, the timeline is a problem, the distribution is a problem, like all those things are a problem. If you think about students actually being public intellectuals or having their research viewed in a public venue. So what, what we have introduced in thinking about this, and this is not in any way unusual, but it is unusual in terms of how the students work and the professors work is valued. Because if you're in a university, your work is valued based on these academic journals, based on these kinds of publications, not on how accessible your work is and not on how many workshops you created, mm. but it's valued by these this by you're actually mentioning already silos, disciplinary silos which have their own ways of vetting whether or not research is recognized. So when we think about it, we think about it in three ways. One is, first of all, how what kind of research is being designed? Who is it be, being designed with? So we really do, in our work, we really do want to work with communities from the beginning, not only because ethically that's the correct thing to do, but also in terms of distribution of that research. You're already building in a mechanism by which your research is going to reach somebody else. The other way to think about this is that conventionally research gets stuck in a particular 
format, let's call it that. So that's a particular structure. So you end up with a situation where um, it's written, it's behind a paywall even, you know, it's hard to access. So what we're trying to do and encourage our students to do is to think about their research in ways like this, a zine, or thinking about it in terms of specifically, I'm trying to reach teachers. Teachers have five minutes between classes to read something. Our workshops that we put into people's hands. So really thinking about the, thinking about the transmedia format. And then the final thing I want to bring up is language. Language, because the one thing that in academia we speak a language, and often that language is barely decipherable to us. I speak for myself. And then when we go into communities, it's just like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And so that's just alone between academic and community. And then in my work, we bridge between intergenerational divides, between political divides. And there you have to really think about language. I, I'm not joking when I say that sometimes we spend weeks on four pages, really thinking through every word just to not people have people just tune out because of the language we're using. So I hope that kind of sets up some of the challenges that exist, but also some of the incentive structures that we're working with. Fantastic. So one of the things this group has talked a lot about as a, a team in these, uh, we were joking as we saw each other in person for the first day today that it's the first time out of pajamas uh, <laughs> that we've got to, got to geek out. Um, I'm still in my pajamas. Um, but one of the things we talk a lot about is this, uh, a sort of, we asked ourselves as we prepared for this conversation, where is the punk sensibility in research storytelling, or, or put another way, if you attended Sam Seidel's talk in the last couple of days and talk, maybe you're a, a hip-hop education fan, not different from uh, hip-hop sensibility, um, I asked each of these folks to come up with some researchers that you all can spend some time Googling to think about storytelling practices that are kind of punk in the research landscape. And so uh, I'm going to start with Kylie. <laughs> and uh, have you share a couple of your examples? Yeah, so uh, you know, I think I think the sky's the limit, right? You know, you've just got to think about the audience, and then you know, what kind of media do you have any expertise in, or or maybe you, have, you can phone a friend here. Um, so all all sorts of things. You've got you've got Paul O working in the um, National Writing Project, and had done like really just beautiful journals that had like prompts and and uh, different ways of using paper circuits and and electronics kind of embedded in the journal just to get kids thinking about STEM and arts and, and writing and so forth in different ways. You've got Philip Beasley, who's a, a, you know, an architect by trade, thinking about living and sentient architecture. And while you, know, you think about large buildings of, that are accessible, but what about if there was just a sculpture that could invite people to learn about sentient architecture and data collection in ways that are both beautiful and provocative? Um, you've got Katie Salen, who is you know, really a known game designer, has done a lot of stuff with, with major industry players. What if we created a school that could be... Um, that could be, uh, you know, in this game-based tenant, and you're moving not from grade levels, but but from uh, boss levels, and moving from from class to class to level up. You've got um, folks like uh, Mark Rosen, who's been working at Guerrilla Science. And what if we took the big innovations in science about uh, you know things that that sound very archaic about like we should be eating bugs, you know, for the future of humanity? How do we how do we create a pop-up event that actually invites people uh, to kind of come up and and try these things for the 
first time? And, and how do we do that just on the street corner and in the local bar and so forth? And so you see people innovating in so many different directions. Uh, and, you know, you can always add a new genre to this list um, and a new audience, I think, for, for this work. So many good ones. Uh, so Paul O., um, Mark R- Rosen, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so get your, get your Googlers out. Uh, Bishop, go ahead. I love this question. You know I do. Um, there's a book called Punkademics by a faculty member named Zach Furness, and I think that's a really dope book if you're interested in really thinking about this question, about exploding research paradigms and writing. One, um, he'll, he'll be embarrassed that I do this, but my co-founder, Henry Beltran-Perez at Global Turning Points, he runs research with indigenous youth about water access on like the borders of Colombia and Venezuela, and I think that research is so punk because it is not actually beholden to anything besides making sure that young people get access to clean water and the families and communities do, all those things. Um, Ciphers for Justice at Teachers College, which is also a real hip-hop ed side of the conversation, but itself also I think is kind of where the same pushback comes in in terms of improv, pushing back against power. Um, And then maybe the last one, uh, Bad Bunny. So the El Apagón video, if you saw that video, which is t- 20 minutes long, go check that video out. The first four minutes is about um, like Puerto Rico, and the last 16 minutes of that music video is live community research on the ground in Puerto Rico about displacement, colonization, neocolonization, all that. So I'm going to shout out Bad Bunny as my favorite punk <laughs> researcher right now. I didn't see Bad Bunny coming. I'm really excited about it, though. Sangita, all right, I'm just you had a really good one. I only get to do one. I'm going to go with maybe two. So the one that was that was voted up as like the top of my list was the thing from the future, which was developed by Jeff Watson and Stuart Candy some years ago. But it's just an enduring example, just as itself, because it's a card game that encourages futurist thinking and um, is based on a lot of research, but then is so simple in its execution. So it's it's a card game, and it just invited my group at least to think about well, we could develop something like this and what would it mean for us to translate our research into that so I encourage you to both check out the game as a, as a thing that you might want to play but also as a thing that might encourage you to like think about translating research differently and then the other two I had which I'm going to sneak in there um, one is two books by this by same group of authors one intersection allies and love without board about love without bounds um, which is about intersectionality and is aimed at children and families to read together and has also a teacher's guide with it and it's just super accessible and beautifully illustrated and then the final one is actually resides within the a more academic context. It's called the Critical Media Project. It's based at USC, founded by Ellison Trope. And what I think really distinguishes it is that it's it's a project that continues to grow because she is use, working with undergraduate students to generate workshops that are then taken into schools, but there's a whole pipeline of this now. So the students generate these workshops, they pilot them with, within the school, and then that gets put onto the public free resource site that then has now generated its own community around it and conferences and so on and so forth. So it's just like a, a way, an ecosystem now that really works very well. So good. Yeah. So lots of resources. All of these are going to go uh, under the show notes for the show. So anybody who wants to come back to any of these links after the conversation, maybe you missed the note, come see us afterward um, to get them, but also you can look at the show notes. So Kylie, 
An area of your, uh, a lot of your work over the last decade, at least, has been under a huge spotlight, right? Computing and computer science, STEM are the areas where the field has clamored for the type of work that you do. As a way of introducing the dilemma we're working through in this dialogue, I'm hoping that you'll tell us a little bit about your work, but importantly, what you realized as you were coming up in this area of research that presented tension or seemed like a divide um, in these worlds you straddle between the academic as an agent of reform in practice and pedagogy? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Mark. You know, so I, I launched my career while I was at UCLA and, and working with the MIT Media Lab team on the initial design study at the, the Scratch platform. And for those of you that, that know or maybe don't know this platform, it's, a, it's, it's sort of the first that came in um, to do visual programming with kids. And so kind of block-based programming where they could mix media. And the kids were drawn to it because they thought maybe this was a tool for them to create something that you might see on Cartoon Network or um, to do a new stage production and be the producer, the director of this production, um, and do all sorts of things with it. And then I, I took that um, that work, and I wanted to move off the screen, and I wanted to, to collaborate with some of the other colleagues on uh, electronic textiles or embedded computers into clothing and so forth. But at every turn, there's all these tensions that are there, right? You know, as we were launching the Scratch platform, for those of you that, that were around in the 80s uh, and kind of knew the logo language and, and the way it had been integrated into almost every uh, textbook, you know, especially in algebra. Um, you know, you just encounter computer programming everywhere you went. And then all of a sudden it dropped off, mm. right? And actually, research was was the killer of that, <laughs> and so um, and so it left the scene. So as we were as we were launching, you know, in the early two thousands, research on this design of the Scratch platform, we would always kind of joke. I mean, people didn't even want to fund it at National Science Foundation. CS for all was like nowhere in sight. Um, so how did we, you know, think about hey, how do we make this cool, you know, to kind of bring this back? How do we think about using code not not for programming sake, but to remix media? And that was the idea of, of Scratch you know, kind of the name of, of uh, kind of on the turntable kind of notion of, of mixing media together. Um, and so part of it was by design about, you know, what um, Mitchell Resnick and, and Yasmin Kavai had kind of envisioned in the design of the platform. But part of it was how we took it up, right? We didn't, we designed it with, you know, kids in, in South Los Angeles at the computer clubhouses. We were there, um, you know, for five years. So just getting something going that the kids, you know, I, I knew we had something when they called it like paper and that they could mm. make anything that they wanted, right? Um, so doing it together, um, as you had mentioned, is really, really important. And spending those hours, um, not just co-designing where, where people come in for an hour, but that you're actually co-creating together, really crafting the, the names of the, each of the coding commands, thinking about, about what's working, what's not working, what is it that they want to make, and, how, and finding that context. But there's other there's other challenges too. You know, if we think about with electronic textiles, how do we think about gender divides or racial divides in computing and in robotics? Um, how can we use our tools and materials to really start to take those scripts and, and rewrite them? Um, so we're always looking for something that that flips the scripts, right? That something that that lies as an outlier, and then how do we do that? And 
well, we had all this great research, right? The design is part of it, but we had this great research just going out to journals, and I had mistakenly thought that, you know, somebody in policy was going to go read those, and it was going to inform policy, and I got, I got excited one day when I got, like, a, uh, you know, somebody's office had called me, but it turns out it was, like, you know, just one of the people that had worked for them, mm-hmm. and, and they interviewed me for a couple hours. I'm like, this is what's really important, and you got to read this article, and I gave them all these notes, and then I, I read their summary that went to the policy policymakers, and then it, you know, maybe some version of that maybe hit something else, and they, you know, but the reality is, is that that nobody's going to come by this thing in a, in a, in a journal, whether it's a policymaker or a teacher, is that we have to do that translational work. Mm. So how do we, how do we actually do that? And that's a lot of a new learning, right? What informs policy? What kinds of studies inform policy? What, um, what is it that they, they need to know? Um, even as I was working with teachers, and they're like, I just want, you know, I think this e-textile stuff is great, but doesn't it just take away from classroom learning time? You know, if I do this, is it just going to be a waste of time? Why don't I just use the materials we always use, our 9-volt batteries and our, and our light bulbs? Um, and so that sprung a whole new line of research for me. Um, I was like, okay, well, if you had 90 minutes, which is actually better. And it was amazing, you know, when we actually went and looked at, looked at this little crappy platform of the, the 9-volt battery and the light bulb, nobody was learning anything. And we compared that to the e-textiles design. So in the same 90 minutes um, that you could actually learn, you know, everything you needed to in your, your science lesson plus more, right? Um, so how do, we, how do we think about the questions that are, that are, um, are uh, audiences are asking, and how do we think about framing our research for those policymakers, for those educators, uh, for the nonprofits, for the libraries? Each one of those audiences are unique and, and need um, separate ways of communicating. Can you come back to, um, you said a thing about research killed the work, and I want to make sure that it's clear. Can you say it in a nutshell? Like, what in your mind was it that killed was it just in in how it was being was it just too much well sometimes there's a danger you know when you just pick up one small piece of research right and it gets popularized um, and it it was the unintended impact of that research, right? So this was uh, this is uh, some mm. of the work that had been done. Logo was being sold as, as a way to do math, right? So you could code and you could learn how to do math, and it would be this great way of doing it. I see. And all of a sudden, it was so shaky that they, you know, they ran a, a couple of research studies, and these were out of Stanford, and that didn't hold any longer. And some, you know, somebody got a hold of that, advertised it, and you know, probably less than 365 days later. It was pulled from all of the curriculum. Uh, you know, historically, you can still go back and look at these textbooks. You'll mm. see it. You know, math and, and CS were you know tightly interconnected, and then it took you know it took decades to kind of bring it back into yeah. the into the fold again. A loss, right? So, um, Bishop, I want to turn to you for a second. So, you're somebody who has a lot of experience in youth programs where. Um, methodology puts what to a lot of people, I think, are usually the research subjects into the role of researcher, developer of the narrative. For our audience here and listeners who engage with the recording, describe some methodologies that help change the traditional power dynamic. Sure. Um, I feel like the big takeaway here is the phrase, nothing about us without us. If you take away nothing else, really, from this, it's probably that. Um, 
So the program that I teach in, the CUNY School of Professional Studies, has a youth studies program. And I call it a sleeper cell program. I think people don't see us coming ever. Um, schools of education don't get a lot of attention. Teachers don't get a lot of attention. Youth workers get less, right? So the after school professionals, the social workers, those folks, that's who my student population is generally. Um, and because we're a sleeper cell program, we can do a lot under the radar sometimes. And so um, in the example I'll use is in uh, spring 2021 in March, the New York City Department of Youth and Community Development approached our academic director saying, we want you to help us run a needs assessment of kind of COVID's impact on New York City, five boroughs and the after school world. Um, and so how do you want to do it? What do you want to do? The caveat here with nothing but love to the New York City Department of Youth <laughs> and Community Development is they gave us three months, 12 weeks to launch, recruit, collect data, complete, write up the findings. Um, so we could have done more, could have been better. It was amazing though. So what we chose to do, um, you know, my fearless leader, Dr. Sarah Zeller-Berkman, uh, brought me in as a co-PI and I ran the project. And the first thing we did was we recruited six alumni from our youth studies program to help us lead this community participatory action research project, right? So, so participatory action research, PAR, community PAR, CPAR, YPAR with young people explicitly. This was a CPAR study. Um, meaning that we were working with adults and young folks. So what we did was we recruited six alumni. One was our program coordinator, Natisha, without which nothing ever would have happened, so big ups. Um, and then we identified five alumni who would serve as lead researchers on this project with us. And we invited them to then select two young people that they worked with to create teams. So we had five uh, community PAR teams that were uh, we came together, we did a bunch of trainings. The youngest researcher was in eighth grade, total fire. Um, a bunch of the researchers were in high school. I think maybe one had just started like freshman year of undergrad. But so we, we trained them up um, in the kind of classic social science practices of interview, observation, et cetera. The study had, um, it was a focus groups. We did testimonials. We did... Um, geo-mapping of like access to resources in and around the five boroughs. And then we also did a youth ask youth community survey, which was like a census of young people in New York City. So the young people themselves um, took the lead, ran all the testimonials, interviewed all kinds of people running youth development organizations across New York City, and then also ran a bunch of focus groups. And you know, what happens here, what this is about is about power. Right? We relocated and repositioned who held power in the conversation, who, who ne negotiated, who we talked to, when we talked to them, et cetera. And you know, we wrote up the findings, and it's not things, things that wouldn't surprise you. I did pull it up, and real, real quick, that's what, the only reason I had my phone in my hands. <laughs> findings were, from the participants, the economic conditions were dire for many participants. Social, emotional, and mental health needs are grave, um, and there's a lack of equitable access to the internet, one. Two, from an organizational perspective, youth workers who, unlike teachers, which are often don't come from the communities that they serve, youth workers generally do come from the communities that they serve, mm. that they have a strong desire to make an impact, and there is a huge um, pay gap that is deeply embedded in like a racialized analysis of black youth workers, brown youth workers are not getting paid, and we're asked to go into the front lines, and a lot of white youth workers and executives were allowed to say, work from home or work at headquarters. Um, and then lastly, the, the, we had retention problems within youth development and within teaching. And then externally, the, um, 
there's no economic security in being a youth worker and being a teacher, um, underpaid, overworked. And so there was a ton to learn. And in the end, what we did was we created, the young people created infographics, took those infographics, came back out and did town halls back out into the community. So yes, a report was written, 50 pages, single spaced, I don't know who read it, but there were infographics and there were these town halls and young people got to be on the mic for all that. Um, this, this person in the back really loves, loves a single space, 50 pages. <laughs> I know her. I can tease. Um, tell me, do you think that the methodologies change the way that the research makes its way into the hands of those it intends to inform and empower? I love that phrase. Uh, nothing, nothing about, about us, us without us. Without us. Yeah. Insane. You know who I think it changed? I think it changed the young people. So that was powerful. I think it changed their peers. I think it changed the, some of the frontline workers that were involved in the work and who were invited in. Um, when it became time to speak to power, talk to power, the commissioner definitely read the report, definitely peeped those infographics, um, <laughs> didn't necessarily come to all of the like, town halls. right? So, it is, so I think it's a complicated question yeah. because you can create the best conditions for this information to get distributed, but people need to be willing to kind of meet you halfway. And policymakers don't always do that. Government officials don't always do that. Executive directors and CEOs don't always do that. Some did, and we had town halls that were powerful and informed a lot of things. Sure. Um, but I think you would have to ask the young people in New York City right now if they feel like the economic conditions have changed or they have better access to the internet to have any good answers to that question. Mm. Really. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the question of how researchers need to get to the bottom of what story they want to tell through research. Kylie, I'm hoping you can walk us through a little bit some examples of approaches you've taken to the problem. Um, what feels like your most practical approach to that so far? And it feels safe to say uh, we are all works in progress and learning as we go. So, um, so what's, what's your latest draft that you feel really strong about? <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, for all of you that are getting started and you're kind of thinking like, okay, I've been doing this research or I've been doing this practice and I'd like to have, you know, a larger footprint and impact. I, I think, you know, identifying the problem, a lot of times, a lot of times we don't spend enough time. We just kind of dive into something. So not just identifying the problem that's important to you, but to, to your constituencies, you know what what's facing the youth, what's facing our government workers, what um, you know healthcare. As we start to think about families, we think about libraries, we think about schools and teachers. You know what are the key problems that you're trying to solve, and really starting with that question as open as you possibly can make it without making it out of bounds with what you're interested in, of course. Um, and then think about the audiences. You know that that hold the power in that dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so I think it's, it's finding the right audience. A lot of times we speak to the wrong audience, right? We're trying to enact change by talking to researchers about research, and that's not the right audience if you really do want to impact policy or if you do want to impact practice, right? So we need to think about, well, who, who holds that power? What, what's that going to be? Um, and that, that could be a power analysis. Every city actually works differently. I mean, the nuances of working in Chicago or L.A. and New York, um, power is held really differently differently in those cities. Um, different school districts' power is held differently. Different schools' power is held differently. So kind of stopping for a moment to really think about who those constituencies are and then how the power is, is, is there. And then 
you know, it's taking a little bit of time and thinking about, okay, this is the audience. That's the audience for the work. You know, that's, that's the group that holds the power that's going to be changing this thing. This is the constituency that we want to be working with um, to involve in that process. And think about spending a little bit of time, too. What, you know, I just pick up things that are speaking to them. Like, they're like, oh, this one pager, you know, is how I convinced my principal uh, to let me go to this professional development. Uh, this one tool here, this, you know, this handout was really what sold our, our new ed tech product to this district. Um, you know, and just kind of keeping keeping like little indexes of like what really, you know, like a what works clearinghouse just on your, on your desktop there. And so that you can kind of analyze like, oh, it's this kind of thing that was really compelling. Or it could be a lot of times this is where we can get the money to then do this initiative. And sometimes it's money that's already going somewhere, but you could actually start to pilfer this off and uh, invest it more um, uh, efficiently in your programs. Or, uh, you know, workforce is a good example. There's a lot of money spent to upscale and reskilling the workforce spent by companies, spent by uh, the government, spent by uh, educational institutions um, and individuals. How can you how can you think about not necessarily making everybody spend more, but thinking about how they can do that investments uh, just more equitably, and then just kind of gearing into that research. You know, all of those kind of stages of that planning process shouldn't take that long, but oftentimes we just jump right into it, right? And then we start to think about it on the back end, or maybe you know the project comes to a close. And you just never had time to spin that out. But really, really starting to think about when are you going to do that and trying to do that as upfront as possible as you can. Mm. If I could just, Please. you just sparked for me, something I've learned the hard way is building the, let's say, let's call it distribution or the sharing of the research and what you're talking about as audience right into the beginning of a project, but then having it be included, say, in a grant application mm. so that the, you know, you, the, the, climax or the finale of the grant is not finished project, right? But actually that it finishes, let's say, one third of the way through and you actually have that time and the resources to be thinking about how you're going to be sharing this out, what you're going to translate it into. And for me, that was something I learned hard, the hard way. And also it's, it's a conversation with whoever the funding entities are to help them understand that this is actually crucial to the impact yeah. of the work. I wonder, so for all three of you who work with students, uh, Bishop, you teach methods, you both are working with a lot of young scholars who are thinking about um, this. And I wonder to what extent we, this room talks a lot about the skills uh, I'm sure all week has been talking about the skills that matter when young people leave 12th grade or leave 8th grade or whatever it is. Um, eventually, what are the skills that matter to the most important outcomes? Um, I'm interested in the skills of researchers, young researchers that you're working with. And, and do you feel like uh, if we were to, uh, what, is, what is the term, durable skills we've been talking about in sessions all week, uh, is research storytelling a skill that's missing from the education of most researchers? Do you see it happening any place in really effective ways? I, I think totally. You know, the um, it, the storytelling oftentimes, I think because 
because with research, we try to get to the the objective truth, right? And storytelling has been grouped with the subjective mm. that we don't know and can't own those t- types of skill sets. And you can also just imagine, you know, if you've majored in STEM and you've you've done these kinds of things that are more apt towards research or even social sciences, uh, we lose sort of the storytelling skills. And so it just might be something that you naturally have, you know, coming into it. But but rarely would you see that as a course offering, or would you see it as a as something that would be there, um, you know. Not only that it's not taught, but oftentimes it's not as valued, especially early on in the process. It's about a cert, at least in my discipline, a certain kind of writing that is, uh, I don't know, I feel like I had to unlearn a lot of the, the things I learned in my PhD process before I was able to actually write. So, um, and that's after writing a, you know, a dissertation. Mm-hmm. So I think that I do see some changes, though, and they're exciting. I see some openness, for example, in, in the school that I'm at to podcasts as a format, not necessarily of the whole dissertation, but as an included format or video or those ki- or more per- first-person narratives in terms of the dissertation format itself. So I think there is room, but then the coursework that leads up to it is actually it's something students have to get elsewhere. It's not something that's per se taught in higher ed. In yeah. the discipline, unless you're an, an explicitly creative discipline, of course, and then yeah. it is taught. Just the question of values. I mean, we've talked about this a lot in preparation for this, and you just named it too. It's not necessarily valued. It just makes me think, like, valued by whom? You know, in what communities, to what ends, whatever. And so, like, yeah, top-tier, high-impact factor peer-reviewed journals are one very small slice of academia behind a paywall most of the time. And so there's so much more to it. Like in our program, we have a heavy emphasis on positionality, which means our students in research methods are always writing about who are you? And what is your, at USF, we talk about homemade theory. What is your homemade theory? Like, where do you come from? And that comes from Gloria Anzaldúa's work. Like, what does it mean to theorize from the flesh? You are someone with a history and communities and legacies. And when you write, when you speak, you aren't objective. Right. So this kind of like false mythology of objectivity is completely unhelpful Mm -hmm. to the social sciences. And something I'm interested in is like doing and undoing research. And I have one semester usually to teach master's students to do and undo research, to, to do it in ways that are credible and that they can read and digest stuff and to undo the harm that is supremacist, racist, sexist, homophobic and transphobic research. If if I'm going to throw a. A twist. Um, so I happen to know all three of you guys are are super creative people. Um, Kylie and I talked a lot today about art um, and her background in in fine arts. And um, I wonder to what extent it's a you feel personally that it's a requirement of young scholars to be creative. Um, and l- let's say there was a program. Let's say you got unlimited, uh, you got some resources for a year and you could have every one of your final year of your PhD students paired with another program. Like what would be the creative field that you'd put your researchers with to, to take a little bit of the creativity that you think they need to learn some of that translation Like what one field? Damn yeah. Mark. Yeah. Damn Mark. <laughs> you got this. I believe in you. I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of things at the same time, right? Like I'm thinking about like graphic design. I'm thinking about like comics and fine arts. Yeah. And then I'm thinking about mindfulness and meditation and surf therapy because, you know, I'm obsessed with that stuff. So like what does embodied practice look like? Like how, how can embodied practice bring you closer to creativity? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you could imagine music or theater or you know any types of these trainings that then get us to to think about it. And I, I think it's it's less about the one that rules them all um, that the training, but but really that you find your own media. You know, like the you know there's a moment as an artist and, and you stumble into your media and you realize that like there's a clarity of vision. And you know, for me, it was even just you know falling in love with just a. a a ballpoint pen, right? There was just something about like the ballpoint pen. I remember, you know, one of my instructors had just kind of tapped me on the shoulder and been like, yeah, I think that's you. I'm like, is it? You know, like, it's such an ugly tool, but okay. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the media just sort of finds you. And so I think, I think part of what I feel like as a, um, as an advisor, as a, um, you know, as somebody who's tried to shape, uh, shape that research uh, intersection is allowing people to find their voice, but, but their, their own media to express this kind of work mm. and, and the audiences that they, that they know something about, right? And it, a lot of times it's just coincidental. It's like all your prior lives that then intertwine. And then now all of a sudden you've got the secret sauce to be able to communicate, um, to that broader audience. And so kind of the, you know, we talk about it, uh, you know, the PhD as being kind of the journey to the center of the self, right? And, and the idea that, that you've got to really kind of know who you are and bring all of your experiences together to be able to communicate outward. But there's a real opportunity there because nobody's going to have that same lived experience as you. So I'm going to come at it a little differently yes. and uh, say, we talk about working through any media necessary. So thinking across different media formats. Um, and this is kind of a, it's, the, it's in a way that the other, the flip, oh, the flip of what you were talking about, Kylie, where it's not asking people to specialize in one media format, mm. but rather think about how their, what their story needs in terms of for it, for it to be told and also for it to be understood and thinking about it across media. And then the layer on top of it would be to not think about it as a single story, but to think about it in a universe or world of stories. So mm. thinking about it in terms of existing am amongst other stories, whether your own or other people's and how you might be able to then um, share it out. So just to give it a little bit of a concrete like concrete form, we have been looking at intergenerational dialogue um, across polarized differences through the civic imagination for a while. We've been looking at it academically and we're like, well, where do we really, what do we need to, how, how can we tell the story? Mm. And we came up with my group, we're just about to start this on, about with a children's book. Right now, none of us have written a children's book before. So we're like, okay, so now who do we need to speak with and learn? What do we need to learn to do this? Because we have now determined that this is the format we need. So it's not that we are specialists in a type of, for, of media or a type of art, but that we've now understood that our research needs this media to be told. Mm. By any media necessary, that's a great title for a book. It is a title of a book. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> It is Take it. A, a fantastic book um, with a, a co-author that you will recognize on this panel that uh, I highly recommend. So um, I recently, totally serendipitously, as I was doing some prep for this panel, I, I was reading an article in Educational Researcher, as one does, um, <laughs> that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes and, and we don't have to talk too much about, but it makes a great case that the most important changes in education via research need to be taken on as a collective endeavor. So specifically, this group of authors is interested in how we change systems, improving education to achieve outcomes and shift a system to one informed by social justice and decolonial goals. I wondered how you all have experienced collective efforts 
And so if this is the truth, how do you think storytelling practice needs to change to accommodate collective practices? I got one thought on that first, which is just like... Is it Bad Bunny? It, it might have to do with El Apagón, but also, like, it's so... Research is framed as such a kind of competitive process. Like, you want to publish first, or you want to get cornered the market on a concept, or that's, we don't call it that anymore. Now we call it this, which is one of the reasons I don't find myself full-time a higher ed, because I can't stand that noise. <laughs> but there are so many spaces where you can do research that doesn't look like that. So I'm doing research right now with the International Surf Therapy Org, and we are looking at surf therapy organizations on 130, 135 orgs on six continents. That research will be like unstructured dialogues with the practitioners that run programs in Mozambique, in Togo, in Cape Town, wherever that is. And then we will uplift that in some kind of shared collective capacity that is like, we don't know what it'll look like yet. So I think that's powerful. Like when I teach methods, my students who are adults are terrified to use the I. They are terrified to be wrong. They're, they're so scared that they're writing in ways that higher ed and the academy will not affirm. And so I think a huge part of our work is, you know, and this is not my framing, I, I'm not an indigenous scholar, but it's to decolonize methodologies, right? Lee Patel's book, Decolonizing Educational Research, Linda Tehue Smith's book, right? Decolonizing Methodologies, everything Eve Tuck has ever written in her whole career. Like, there are ways, there are abolitionist feminism, black feminists, like there are so many people who are showing us ways to do this. Collective storytelling, you know, Cumbie River Collective, like I think it's just a matter of like stepping away perhaps from what AERA tells us to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm pushing even further, like rethinking what we mean by research. So a lot of our current research are actually creative sessions with communities where we're inviting everybody to imagine together. So we're actually engaging in a process of imagining, sort of flipping again the the class is half empty, we have to identify a problem versus identifying opportunities. So, and that is a collective process, working with the community, and then research projects can, can come out of that, and the research itself can be creative. I think often we think of the, re, the creativity coming at the end, mm -hmm. but it can actually be built into the whole process. So you're storytelling through the research with the participants, as opposed to then trying to create the story at the very end of it. Yeah. The process feels uh, lovely to me, messy to a lot of people, right? Uh, it, it feels very unresearched to have something that's as emergent as what you, you both described. And I wonder, um, how do we reconcile that, especially if part of what we need to do is to tell these collective stories? Um, how do we bring the academy, bring the mountain closer to us and help realize that, that uh, possibly the way to tell these stories isn't as rigid as it once was. I, I think there's some low-hanging fruit, right? You know, so just small things that you can just do to make inroads. And part of that is that, that co-publication process, right? Bringing, um, bringing your, your practitioners, your artists, your, your activists into um, co-authorship. And this could be, even be your youth um, and your YPAR activists as well that could be in there. could also be, um, you know, just picking different venues that you're talking to and publishing in something different. Um, you know, a couple of my colleagues that are really really 
great at publishing, oftentimes they'll think about, well, what's the research piece, but then also what's the piece that I'm uh, publishing in Kapan or another venue that will get out to um, practitioners, because that's an audience that I really care about. And so really trying to balance the scholarship in that way. Another, another colleague might uh, not publish out to practitioners, but more to bloggers or to think about you know, a piece of curriculum that could actually kind of come out of that work. So think about small uh, baby steps in that direction that can, can um, start, to, start to shift our work in those directions. Great. Um, Mark, can I say one thing on that? Though? Of course you can. Like, so I've been teaching research methods at youth studies for 12 semesters. This is my 12th semester. And the thing that matters is what's the question? Like, what is your research question? How are you framing the question? Because how you frame the question means everything. Um, you know, historically, we know that, like, white researchers have been asking questions about, quote-unquote, at-risk youth and, like, framing black and brown communities in one particular way for decades or centuries, right? And so what does it mean to reframe those questions and to be asking questions that put the verb disrupt at the beginning of the question? How do we disrupt? How do we interrupt? I have one of my students had a question, and I uplift this all the time, Nicole Hamilton's shout out, um, which is how, what personal gain do black youth get when their schools divest from practices of white supremacy? That was her research question. It's a very different question than like, how do we make schools not suck? <laughs> that was my research question. <laughs> I'm glad you said what you did. Um, so, so we have about 10 minutes left. I'm going to uh, call a quick audible and ask. Um, we do have time for Q&A, but I want to just see by show of hands how many questions, even if you're not confident, maybe you like bubbling up somewhere in your belly. You're like, I think I might want to ask a question. Can I just see a show of hands of people who are like ready to ask? Like, you need to fire away on this panel <laughs> immediately. Okay. Okay. So should we, should we get into questions? Oh, yeah. So... Um, this mic up here is so friendly, um, and the reason that I'll ask you to ask your question into the mic is so that we have it on the recording and um, make sure that your, your question and this answer is part of the show. It's all you. You guys can queue up at the mic at will. Good afternoon, sorry for being late. Javier Wallace, uh, currently doing a postdoc at Duke University in African and African American Studies, finished from the University of Texas. Uh, my question is, listening to what you all are saying about disrupting the way that research is, has been conducted, is there a way for these practices to exist within traditional academia as it stands? Like, how do you go up for promotion? with doing this type of research? And is it a viable way to stay in academia with such, dis with such disruptive practices yeah. within your research? Thank you. You bet, thank you for the question. We talked a little bit about this. Somebody wanna? I think, first and foremost, I want to say yes, it is, right? Um, but you've got to plan. You've got to plan it ahead. Because I would probably say higher education, uh, academic institutions are probably some of the slowest institutions to change, right? And so it's not going to be um, already there for you to walk into, right? So I think first form your coalition, 
right? Get the people to all agree with you and start to put some things into writing. And this is, this is best done as soon as you, you know, put feet on the ground, as soon as you enter someplace. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't. So the thing, the thing that is the hook here is think about impact, right? So you're a blog writer, you know, and you're writing a blog. Well, how many people are subscribing? How many people listen to this thing? Um, you're an artist. How many people actually viewed your, your work? How many uh, countries was it, was it um, you know, displayed in? Uh, what are the number of uh, site visits? Those kind of things. So you can think about impact. Um, it's not going to displace the typical scholarship, right? And so sometimes, sometimes I think scholars get a mixed message, which is this thing is going to count and it's going to displace this. But it doesn't mean that you can't bring it into even almost a 50-50 conversation, right? And so, um, so you know, you can publish in, you know, one high-quality journal and then you can, you can do a blog for a year, right? And you can talk about what those equivalences are. Um, make sure you've got people that are sitting on the P&T committee and are going to make that really translatable for that practice. But um, other parts of the portfolio, you could hide it in, um, you know, when you're going up for tenure, if you're in an arts department, it's your creative portfolio. And so you see a lot of people working in this way, and they're, they're creating um, an installation. They've got a, um, you know, maybe a, uh, you know, new piece of uh, theater that's going out or, or whatever it is. But they put that in those creative productions, and then those can be sort of seen as, as publications in that sense as well. It also really matters who's sitting on those editorial boards. So there's tons of dope scholars that are doing work that is disruptive, and, and we know them, right? Bettina Love is somebody that we uplift all the time. Yolanda Celia Ruiz is one of my favorite people in the world doing research around critical love. Um, Jamila Liscott at UMass Amherst is, I think, right now the editor of Equity and Excellence in Education, and all of this can get hyperlinked. So it's like, who are those scholars that are running these editorial boards are, who are the people who are driving the agendas for these journals, top, top tier, high impact, peer reviewed journals, you know, it doesn't have to be just like a wiki space. We were shouting out wiki spaces as an art, as a relic. You know, you can still do things that meet all of the criteria for a P&T committee, but do it, you know, standing in solidarity with scholars that you want to be in conversation with. Mm. I, I think that's right. And, and you know, when going back to this, this point you made about the right question, right, ask the question, you're probably doing research in that translational piece, ask the question and really start to, start to document that work and share that with the audience. Nobody else knows how to do this, especially in academic circles. You know, we're all moving at snail speed. And so, so share that in a, in a publishable format. One thing that you missed at the head, and I know we have another question um, getting getting ready here. One thing that you missed at the beginning of the show, possibly, is that there will be a link in uh, the show notes for this episode. And each of these uh, scholars came up with some uh, punk researchers and punk research projects that um, you can also look into as, as part of that inspiration. So um, if you missed that, we'll, we'll get you that info. I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much. I have to tell you that this panel is one of the reasons that I convinced my executive director to allow me to come to this conference, because I'm trying to learn what you all are talking about, and I'm just going to say to Bishop, you better preach. Like, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So um, my question is, I work for a center on research and evaluation that is run through our, um, our school of education, and they are doing great work. Um, I'm trying to sort of find where I fit in. Um, mm. I have a Master of Fine Arts in creative, non nonfiction, creative writing. 
And so I am doing projects uh, on my own outside of the university because I have access that I can give information back to the community that I'm doing this work in. But it's not that easy in the university environment. But my center wants to do that. So I want to know what kind of resources can you recommend to me? Because I don't know many people who are doing the work that you all are doing in the way that you want to do it. Mm. Uh, on my own projects, I'm doing podcasts. I'm working on a documentary. I'm doing those things. But again, it's not as easy trying to give, convince the university to give me the freedom to do what I need to do um, for the projects for an amazing community who wants something back for being studied and looked at and poked at, yeah. you know, for years and years and years. So any suggestions for that? And thank you. Thank you so much for the question and the comment. I mean, in terms of resources, Kylie, you're, I'm just thinking of Connect the Connected Learning Alliance and just checking out all the resources on that site. Um, there's, it's a great community network, lots of examples of projects, lots of examples of methods. Yeah, you know, finding those amplifiers, right? Mm -hmm. so, that, so that it's your podcast, but then how can, it, how can somebody else amplify it and run it on the Connected Learning Alliance? Um, and those of us in the room, we might actually need to not just create the content, but we might actually need to create the amplifier too, right? And really work differently or sit on those PNT committees that actually get to decide what those rules are um, and really taking time, you know, it, these systems have to change, but we've, we've got to invent the next layer up. And also, I think just depending on what the limitations are, is, is PNT a consideration, right? Promotion and tenure. It's not always. And so if it's not, like, who else can you talk to? The people who run Liberated Ventures are, like, black feminists. I'm trying to follow into the future, you know, the out of Oakland. Sean Jinray has got a ton of work happening with the Flourish agenda. Like, there are people out there who are they have one foot in higher ed, but the other foot is squarely grounded in the community and they're mobilizing resources and money. And you know, there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of white guilt and there's a lot of money attached to that guilt right now. And it is getting redistributed and so you gotta really like lean into that. Hmm. So good, go ahead. Thank you so much for the question. Hi, I'm obsessed. Um, I, we're working in Nevada and doing some work with youth and we definitely use the slogan nothing about us without us so I'm so thankful that you said that and I have one question related um, and I forgot it now but I'm going to okay. start with my second question um, I'm, oh I wanted to know the name of the 50 page research paper because I want to read it sure yeah so it's out of the intergenerational change initiative at CUNY um, the title escapes me right now it's like needs assessment blah 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 like it's you know COVID needs assessment New York City all of these extra words um, but look up the intergenerational change initiative at City University of New York and we can get it to you awesome thank you and then my oh sorry go ahead no I was just going to say that I happen to know that you can share it over the South by social Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a little scared Which of those. I know you're social, on. But so you can, yeah, you anyway. can find Bishop. What was your second uh, question? And then I have a more personal question. Um, working on a capstone related to participatory futures, and I'm especially in education, I didn't know if y'all knew anyone or anybody I should be looking at that's doing work in that space. I haven't found much, so... So I will say we are. Um, I would direct you towards the, our current project is the Civic Imagination Project, and we have a series of workshops and like, building on different ways to think about memory, to think about futures, to think about collective imaginings together. So I would just direct you to civicimaginationproject.org, or if you come to me, I'm happy to share. Like all, there's a lot of materials there. We've worked with a lot of schools as well. There, there's a lot of people at the University of Georgia, I think, like, um, 
Uh, Cynthia Dillard, I think, is did she move? I don't know. She was there for a minute. Damaris Dunn is there, and she's doing work that's like that, too. And then, of course, there's like the Black Futures Lab as a place that is just like an active and interesting place to look into right now. Uh, yeah, I just want to thank you all. So I, you know, I've got 16 years teaching eighth grade English, and like this is the first time I've ever felt welcome into the research. It, it feels like it's like mass being done in Latin, except for that you have to pay forty dollars to get into the church <laughs> right. as well. Um, and so, um, yeah, that, I think the the work that you're doing is hugely important to to start finding ways to storytell and communicate the work that that the people need. And I just wonder if you have ideas for for people on my end who are also trying to enter that world a little bit and and you know you're reaching how can we reach back to to get some of what's out there well first of all your comment is maybe the my favorite compliment to anything ever that's happened at a in a conference venue that means so much to me and i thank you for your work because eighth grade man woo. <laughs> um these guys, I'm sure, have thoughts, but I will say, I think, first and foremost, you just did it, right? Like, having the courage to come up and uh, make your voice heard as an educator who wants to be a, a part of that and, and kind of finding your research people who, um, who are going to be part of it. I'll say one thing from my perspective. I've been obsessed with uh, teachers on TikTok, and however you feel about TikTok, I think that there is something... Uh, that transforms in the way that educators in the classroom are using TikTok. Um, if you think about all the millions of duets that are out there on TikTok, I have been fascinated by the idea of what it looks like to, to have uh, duets that are dialogues between educators in the classroom and, and researchers, practitioners in other spaces. So that's, that's my contribution is I'm obsessed with, with media right now where Teachers can step up and step out of the school setting and feel less isolated in their ideas. Now, I know that comes with, you know, depending on where you are and what kind of leadership you have at your school, there may be constraints there. But that's where I'm really excited to explore as somebody who wants to have those conversations with, with teachers in our network. There are like conference spaces to think about. Um, free people, free minds, right? Every other year is a cool one. And also in some different cities, there are like teacher uh, collectives that are really valuable. So in New York, the New York Collective of Radical Educators, NICOR, is a space that holds like teachers in the like position of power that they should actually get to sit in. So the other thing I'll say, and I said it to this crew before, is like doing YPAR in your classroom is one of the most powerful things you can do. So thinking about reading about like how do I do participatory action research with young people? Because like we know right now, teachers are on the line, right? Like they're the most burnt out population probably working in the US and they are getting politically attacked left and right. But young people, youth researchers are not scared of the governor. <laughs> They're not, like you might have to be scared because you got an admin or you got a policy issues and there's like, they're locking up teachers for talking about race and gender and sexuality and young people are like, F out of here. Like, I'm gonna talk about my life and my body and my power. So I think that YPAR is a really cool way because it like, you, you see the power of research too and you don't feel so alone. 
Yeah, I wanted to suggest, it's like these really great conferences that sort of bring educators, researchers, um, even industry partners together. And so I um, wanted to give it a shout out to the Connected Learning Summit that that is uh, coming up really soon. Um, also, Games Learning and Society is also a great one if you're into gaming, but they, they've branched out to do other, other kinds of work as well. So I think look for these, these uh, communities that you can engage. And I think as a, as a practitioner, uh, you know, think about yourself as a researcher, right? You're constantly, constantly redesigning the class, redesigning these, these experiences. Um, and I think the, um, you know, as an artist, as an educator, you're always, always kind of working in these traditions. And so you've got important stories to tell, bring them to the conferences. It's a good way, you know, you don't need to take them to the research articles, um, you know, to have impact, but really just get, getting your insights and, and your practice out there to the world. Also, just speaking from, from my experience, so we put materials out, we put modules and curricula out, and it's the most exciting thing when we heard from teachers who have been using it, and often we've then worked with them to publish what they've been doing. So if you are using something like that, you should just connect with the, the, the authors of that. If there's something like that, and then maybe you even changed it, or you augmented it, and that can just introduce you to a community that also can be helpful. Last thing I will say is if, and if part of the interest is participation as a classroom or with students, um, I would be more than happy, and I'll bet you these folks would be more than happy to have a conversation with you just to brainstorm ways that you can hack the system. Like be, uh, so one thing that comes to mind is, I don't know what your area, your subject is. Language arts. Language arts, right? So, um, you know, having worked in STEM for a long time, like I think of the National Science Foundation, when grants are awarded, they don't wait till the end to, to post those awards to the National Science, Science Foundation website. It's a little bit of a slog to read them. But when those proposals go up, each one of those represents an opportunity to participate as a, a classroom with your students, as an educator, if it's a sort of PD focus. So that's one thing I would start to do is to find the sources where that stuff is being posted, especially with federal grants. Um, find the research that you think matters the most, even if it's private foundations. Um, find that research. When you hear it on NPR and you're like, this story is crazy, who's the funder? They will list it in the show notes. Go find that funder and say, look, I'm an eighth grade classroom teacher and tell me about other, other research in your network that you need participants for. Um, since you we, mentioned yeah. language arts, I would just also point to the National Writing Project as another sure. yeah. I want to thank this panel for all of their expertise today. Uh, we're going to end with a round of applause, but uh, the round of applause is also for all of you. I hope you will go and find these scholars. They will be in the show notes. They're obviously on the uh, schedule for South by Southwest EDU. Find their work, do some reading, um, do some watching. They're all, listen, they don't even know what of their talks are on YouTube, um, but I do. So you let me know. Um, the show is No Such Thing. You can find all of our episodes, 100 and almost 20 of them, on nosuchthing.org. If you find a big pink ice cream truck, uh, you found it. And like I said at the beginning of the show, the greatest gift you can give to us, all of us as a community, because the show is about uh, narrowing this divide between ideas and practice, uh, is to review the show and, and refer it to a friend. Uh, so the round of applause is for all of us in this room, for the things we care about, for all of you spending this hour with us. Thank you.
more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. 